welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Richard Sears, science writer for Madden America, here today with Dr. Katrina Michelle. Dr. Michelle is the founder and director of The Curious Spirit, a transpersonally oriented psychotherapeutic practice that encourages transcendent personal exploration as a remedy for psychological suffering. In addition to her practice, Dr. Michelle also serves as the Director of Harm Reduction for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies and formerly worked as the Executive Director of the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences. Welcome, Dr. Michelle, and thank you for talking with us today. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me. Um, so we're just going to jump right into the questions here. And I wanted to start by just... Uh, Asking how you came to your work, um, what what drew you to to transpersonal psychology, and um, what drew you to your work uh, in harm reduction for for maps? Well, I guess it's a similar story about how I arrived here. Um, transpersonal psychology, before I knew what it was, was always an interest of mine. It is uh, something that is at the intersection of consciousness studies, philosophical inquiry behavioral health, spirituality. And while I always kind of knew I wanted to be a therapist and I, I went to traditional route of going to, through mainstream social work school, learned a lot about myself in the process, I always felt that there was something that was missing from general psychotherapy practice. And I knew it was that spiritual piece. So eventually I did go back to school to study transpersonal psychology and it was actually during that academic endeavor that I realized that what had drawn me to the field all along was my own transpersonal experience. And that is something that was spontaneous to me. For me, it wasn't a psychedelic experience. It, it was a what Stan Graf refers to as a unit of experience, which is this unsolicited merging of consciousness with the world around you, this sense of expansion, this open-hearted bliss, love, state of being, and it was something that I, it was completely ineffable. And um, it took me over 10 years to even begin to find words to point to it. And it wasn't until that decade later that I went back to school for transpersonal psychology that I realized this is what I was here to study. It was based on my own experience. And it was a program that was there to help give me community and structure and guidance around integrating it. So um, that became sort of the next leg of my journey was working with that uh, profound experience that I never had words for and learning to, to integrate it into my life. How did you come to your work at MAPS and harm reduction? Um, just a similar story there? Yeah, so it, it's along the same trajectory. Um, basically, after completing my PhD in transpersonal psychology, I was I had been volunteering with ASSIST, which is the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences. And I served with them as their executive director for three years. And then this opportunity came about with MAPS to work with um, the Zendo Project and harm reduction. And what I liked about the opportunity is that we know that the research that MAPS and other organizations are doing around psychedelics is not only being understood to be a mental health breakthrough in terms of treatment, but it's also something that is a breakthrough 
in large part because of the transpersonal states it induces. And not everyone like me has the gift of having this spontaneous experience when you're coming out of the New York City subway. So I think, um, you know, there are certainly other practices that can induce these states, yoga, meditation, et cetera, but certainly psychedelics are something that can be used in a way to facilitate these states of expansion and self-reflection to assist with healing and growth. And so what I really liked about MAPS is, is the idea that they are mainstreaming these states, which previously to my studies felt very fringe. And I think the world has readied itself a lot in the past few years for understanding these and, and embracing them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to build off of that a little bit, can you can you tell us what place you see for psychedelics and mental health treatment? How do you see them being used in, in psychotherapy or, or otherwise? Yeah, I think it's it's such a fascinating juncture we are at because we know that any type of transpersonal treatment really can have the ability to shift your consciousness. And psychedelics don't mess around. They get right to the heart of it. You can't hide from them, right? They're like truth serum. And they allow us to move beyond all of the defense mechanisms. These are defenses that we've built for good reason, right? They've served us up until some point. And at some point, they become a burden and they become dysfunctional and they limit us from expanding in our lives or in our sense of ourselves. Psychedelics really cut right through our defenses. And that can make us be able to see beyond ways that we have patterned ourselves to, to be seen in the world. And it can also be really scary to be that vulnerable. So that's why I think harm reduction is important when it comes to psychotherapy and integration, because it, it's, a, it's a new state of being. And if it's not held with the right cultural context, it can be challenging for people and it can even cause more trauma. Um, can you talk to us a bit about um, the work of harm reduction? Um, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, so harm reduction is a rather large field. Um, psychedelic harm reduction, as we've been doing it at the Zendo Project, is really about looking at where people are coming in to their experience and needing support. And so we've done that by building a model of peer support where volunteers are trained to serve each other. And then in this way, we avoid the whole hierarchy and we allow people to feel empowered in you know, being able to hold that space and learning those human skills of community that can serve all of our processes of deepening. Um, and so the work of harm reduction is really, I see it as, um, there's a few different parts to it. I think the first is preparing for your journey, knowing what substances you're going to take them, exploring considerations about how you're going to take them, who you're going to take them with, understanding your family history, what might be triggered, um, you know, psychologically and whether or not you might have the capacity to manage that, planning your care after the fact, and then, um, you know, set and setting, obviously knowing your drugs, knowing your source, testing your drugs, and then again, going through that process in a safe way and making sure that people are there to, to support you and guide you in, in terms of being safe physically. And then once that journey is complete, giving yourself the resources to work with it, because the lessons that will come up don't end at the end of the journey. They can go on for months and years and for your life, really. 
And there's a lot of beauty in the profundity of these experiences if we can work with them and we don't just leave them behind as, you know, it's kind of like a fun ride that we then went home and forgot about. So harm reduction really serves that whole spectrum. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about like integrating these kinds of experiences. Um, so integrating um, experiences with psychedelics, uh, but also the kind of, uh, I think you got like a unitive experience, the uh, the kind of spiritual experience you describe yourself as having. Like, why is it important to integrate those things? And, and how do we go about doing that? Why is it important? Well, for me, in my experience, that was something that I couldn't quite put away. It was always there in the back of my head. When I would remember it, it would bring me to tears. And I really had no context for it. My first thinking when I came out of that experience, which was really at once fleeting and timeless, um, my first assessment was like, oh, I must be having a psychotic break. You know, I was about 20 years old. I was at that time, the kind of traditional, um, the way we understand it through the medical model, the traditional time where you can likely have a break. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that I didn't decompensate. I was able to hold it together. But the integration piece for me came in in that I felt like I was never really able to live my complete full life. I think there was a there was something powerful about that experience to me that pointed me toward my journey and my path. And until I was able to name it and have community around it and work with it and what it meant to me, I don't think I was on that path. I think it was just a one-off experience that was kind of perplexing and beautiful and confusing, but I wasn't really able to do anything with it. So I think, you know, it's similar to any psychedelic journey where you can have this amazing experience. You might even work with it for the weekend if you're at a retreat. And then if you put it away, it's not there to serve you. But if you come home and, and you have people that are willing to support you in processing it, and if you're journaling about it and dancing with it, you can really take the lessons and work them into your regular state of consciousness. And I think that's where the growth comes in, is in taking those expanded states and helping us move them into our daily lives. So in your view, can you talk a little bit about, about why we would label some drugs as therapeutic, um, like some of the stuff that we use in more traditional kind of um, therapeutic practices, benzodiazepines and things like that, um, versus why we kind of have have ascribed this other class of drugs as something that's, that's not therapeutic. So uh, hallucinogens is definitely going to fall there. I think psychedelics in general, maybe less so now than, than yeah. <laughs> maybe 20 years ago, but definitely it's still, like you mentioned earlier, kind of a fringe idea. Yeah, I think we're getting there though. I mean, the research is really clear about the benefits for therapeutic use. Um, the way I understand it is that you know, taking a broader step about back about looking at the mo medical model and the medical model to me, while it certainly has its benefits and it, it can be helpful to individuals and I'm not somebody who's anti-psychiatry, I think it's an individual choice and I think it's something that you have to decide for yourself and work with your intuition and find the right providers. Um, but I think the medical model in large works by symptom suppression. And the difference is sometimes the symptoms that are coming to the surface, those experiences that are kind of out of the box are really there to teach us something. They're, they're there to point us towards something. And so if we can expand our way of thinking about these symptoms beyond just suppressing the anxiety with benzos and work with it, then there's possible potential for a lot of growth there, I think. 
Um, so that's one way that we've used drugs traditionally in psychiatry. And I think this new model, psychedelics, is completely the opposite, where instead of suppressing, we're ripping the Band-Aid off. We're looking for the truth. We're letting it all come out. We're bringing the shadows out to the surface, and we're working with them. And that's the therapy. That's the real work. It's not about pushing them back down and going about our day. It's to me, I mean, this is what I think psychology is meant to do. It's it's meant to help you be reflective of yourself and your states and understand what's coming up and why so that we can ultimately grow and expand and evolve as individuals and ultimately as a collective. And I, I think that leads pretty nicely into this next question. So as a, as a transpersonally oriented psychotherapist, um, can you talk a little bit about how you understand uh, mental illness or psychological suffering different than kind of the, the disease brain model that's the, kind of the most popular right now? Again, maybe not as much so as it used to be, but um, still definitely the prevailing model, I think. Well, I think there's a lot of different ways I could approach answering that question. Um, but what I think is most important initially is that I think transpersonal psychology and my personal orientation is really there to empower the individual. So for me, it's not about checking off a list of symptoms and coming up with a diagnosis, which I then ascribe to you and you carry around like a weight on your shoulder. Some people need that. You know, some people it helps to have a label for it because then they think they have some control over it. And that's fine if that works for you. But I think the beauty of transpersonal psychology is like, we could do that too. And if that's what your insurance is going to pay for, I'm happy to give it to you. However, it's also about looking beyond that and it's empowering you to find the language that works for you. So I use the work of um, Stan and Christina Groff, their spiritual emergence and spiritual emergency lens to really explore what it means to look at these states as potentialities. And again, I think it's up to each individual to know if they need a certain type of therapy, a certain type of treatment that's going to work for them. Um, But I think there are ways that we can do this, which are more intelligent and more comprehensive than just the medical model, which is essentially you know, take a pill for as long as you can, suppress the symptoms and go to therapy. But, you know, are people really engaging in the kind of therapy they could be where instead of suppressing the symptoms, they were diving into the symptoms and they were looking at what was there. So it's it's sort of just, um, again, instead of a reductionist view, I think it's more expansive view. It's giving us an opportunity to build out the possibilities and look to heal in that way. Um, yes, yeah, sounds like you're kind of describing like a holistic approach to to mental health right. a little bit. And I'm I'm wondering a little bit um, if maybe you can give us some examples. If if not, that's fine too. But if you have any examples of like kind of holistic things that you might bring into a transpersonal practice, like I've talked to a lot of colleagues of mine that are kind of holistically oriented. Um, and what I've noticed a lot of times, not to kind of criticize people that aren't around, but like that gets used as a buzzword. I think like they may be holistically oriented, but then if you start talking to them about behaviorism, they kind of want to tell you how awful behaviorism is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm kind of wondering, like, is, are there any ways that you bring other like orientations into your practice or or do you mostly just concentrate on transpersonal stuff? 
Well, I, again, yeah, so I, I agree with you about the word holistic. And when I first started using it, I really felt that, you know, that word can mean many things to many different people. And I felt like the people who resonated with it would be the ones who found me and then, you know, reading about my work specifically would would resonate or not. And yeah, I absolutely, I I don't discount, like I said earlier, anything that behavioral mental health gives us. There are certainly tools there that can be super valuable for people. I don't discount psychiatry as a whole. I think it has problems, but I think used with discretion appropriately, it has a wonderful place in healing people. And personally, in terms of my techniques, I mean, I tap into what I understand to be my own sensitivities. Um, I hesitate the word, to use the word intuition because I think those those words can sound flaky and out there, but really it's just it's really just about tuning into a person in front of you and and getting a communication with them that's beyond words, that's beyond the physical. And I think, look, energy is real. Science points to it. I can't speak to the science per se myself because it's not my field, but we know energy is real and it's alive. And so when I'm tuning into somebody's energy in front of me and talking with them about what I'm feeling and they're reflecting back to me, usually we do go into a bit of an altered state. We'll start with a meditation. We'll move into a space of shifting from ordinary consciousness, and then we'll be in the session. And for me, it's a really organic process. Every person needs something different. I don't think there's a one size fits all. And that's another meaning of holistic to me. It's like my body and my mental landscape and my spirituality are not the same as yours. And that's perfect. We're all unique humans by design. So that's, that's how I approach it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, kind of spiritually transformative, transformative experiences. Um, and you mentioned earlier, uh, you had that kind of like that unitive uh, spiritually transformative experience coming off of the subway. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Would you be comfortable kind of, describing what happened for you there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So like I said, I was, I was probably about 20 years old and I was just going about my day, heading somewhere on the subway and popping up off of the subway, walking onto Lexington Avenue in New York. And I was suddenly taken away. I was taken into this space that was outside of time and space as I knew it. There was this sense of knowing, of understanding the universe. And I call it kind of understanding the fabric of the universe, like how it's all connected. Seeing that all of these strangers around me in New York City are actually all part of me and I'm a part of them and feeling this overwhelming sense of love and empathy for these people. And, and, you know, this is not the framework that I was coming from. I'm a born and raised New Yorker. Like we don't talk like that. So for me to suddenly have this spontaneous experience, it was blissful and it was beautiful. And then as I came out of it, it was confusing and it wasn't something I could wrap my logical mind around. So that for me was, um, you know, some people would call it a mystical experience I tend to refer to it as a unitive experience, but it was certainly something that was out of ordinary consciousness. And, you know, it's those experiences that people have, again, whether psychedelically induced or other, that can really be catalysts for change. And I think it's the integration over days, months, years, whatever it takes for you and your unique experience, the integration that leads to that change and that transformation. And what's fascinating, you know, and I I worked on this with my research 
Um, and also when I was working with assist, spoke with a lot of people who had a variety of different, we call them STEs, spiritually transformative experiences. And, you know, the integration can last a long time and it can be really confusing and, and not everyone's experiences are blissful and beautiful like mine were. Some people uh, involve a lot of pain, a lot of what appears to be medical issues, but that yet they, they can't be diagnosed. And I think we're really needing a framework to give people language around understanding that there's more to our makeup as biological people um, and call it what you will. And I don't think you need to identify a spiritual to acknowledge that there's some other connection there that's working through you, especially when you have experiences like that. I kind of think it's worth pointing out here too, um, in this answer and your last answer, you kind of pointed to like, like energies and connections that are kind of deeper. And you even kind of mentioned that like you, you, you're careful about your language there, right? Because you may come off as kind of flaky or something like that. Um, just to take a moment to address that. Um, so in like traditional psychotherapy, for instance, I know a lot of colleagues of mine talk about this thing called transference, Mm -hmm. which to me seems really similar to what you're talking about. It's just a, different word that they have to use for this connection between people that exists. Um, So I don't know. I wonder if you could address that just a little bit. Like, you know, they have this special word that they can use, so they don't have to be so careful with their language Um, in your field for transpersonal psychology. Maybe that special word doesn't exist, or maybe it gets kind of lumped in with flakiness and not being scientifically rigorous. Um, so how do you kind of navigate that? I don't I don't know that I've had to navigate it too much myself personally. You know, I think my general rule of thumb is know your audience. <laughs> there are some people, if I talk about transference, there is not going to mean a thing to right. them. But if I talk about intuition or connection or empathy, they are very present with me and they soften and they open up. Transference can sound very clinical yeah. and analytical and mental. And some people can feel put off by that. And I think... Again, the importance of language, a word like transference, I think can feel very loaded and hierarchical. And again, as a therapist who wants to approach the people I'm working with as the experts on themselves, coming across with my clinical language can be something that really makes people feel like othered. So I'm I'm cautious about that as well. But yeah, um, you make a great point about transference and, and the energetic connections. And I like that. Um, so back back to spiritually transformative experiences, if we could talk about those for another second. Um, you kind of talked about the really powerful experience you had. I wondered if you could talk to us a bit about um, how you can kind of recognize that maybe in, in yourself. I mean, you said, you know, sometimes it's this really kind of uplifting thing that happens. Sometimes it's might be more painful. It might be like a little maybe the, whatever the opposite of uplifting is. Right. Yeah. Um, so how, how can we recognize that in ourselves and how can we recognize it in people around us? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think this is part of why I want to be having these conversations with people to help give them a context for what it is they're experiencing that falls out of the language we have. So, you know, many people might be experiencing like these energetic surges and you go to a medical doctor and they'll give you the workup, but there's not usually an answer for that. Whereas you talk to a spiritual teacher and they might describe that as, you know, a Kundalini rising experience. And it's just something we haven't 
completely built the bridge for you between these ways of understanding energy or spirituality, if you will, versus, again, looking through the medical lens and diagnostic testing that we have available to us right now. Um, But yeah, I think in general, it's a process of opening up. It's a process of dropping the defenses that comes along, and it allows us to work through the shadow material to purge what's there so that we can become clearer and we can become more expansive and, and more genuine and open. People who go through these STEs tend to really have, and, and the reason this, this name comes about is because their experiences are so transformational that their whole lifestyle changes. So they often will leave relationships they've been in for a long time. They will completely change their career path. They will become much less centered around money and status and privilege and focus on humanitarian causes or being of service. So it's really fascinating to watch how people shift because of these experiences. They move them in such a way where they're, again, they're, they feel and I'm generalizing, but in general, people feel like there's a connection to something greater than themselves and they want to be in service of that. And that can come with its own trauma when suddenly you don't have the friends you've had for 20 years or you're finding the end of a marriage or your children don't recognize you anymore. Um, And that's part of the integration too, is integrating that new way. Like now I need to be this person. I'm sorry, I'm not this corporate mom you thought I was before, but now this is who I am. So how can, how can you see me for who I am? Or how can I build a lifestyle that reflects that now? That's really true to myself. I'm wondering, you've mentioned um, psychedelics as kind of a catalyst for these kinds of transformative experiences. Do you know of any other catalysts similar to psychedelics? Like, you know, sometimes it's just going to strike you when you're coming off a subway. Sometimes it might be psychedelics, but like, other things? Are there other things we can do to kind of encourage this? Absolutely. Again, I think um, meditation, for example, is is a really powerful tool. People will often have these experiences at these Vipassana retreats where it's 10 days of silence and, you know, you quiet the mind and you get to that state where something else rises in you. There's space for something to come through and that can be terrifying for people. Um, and then it's also, it is something we, we kind of seek out in, in our Western culture without realizing it. You know, yoga has become a physical exercise and a stretch that we do, and it's become a fashion statement. And what yoga really is about is about opening up the channels to connect with that higher consciousness. So people are going through these physical asanas, these postures, and they're not recognizing that they're stirring the energies in their bodies and they're moving things around and they're opening up their potential to have experiences that they might not be ready to have. Because again, there's no language, cultural context in our Western society. And chances are your 200 hour yoga teacher has no idea what's happening if you start convulsing on the floor in in her class. (laughs) So... Yeah, there are certainly ways we can induce it. And again, the harm reduction lens is about educating yourself on, on the possibilities of these practices. It sounds great to have a, a blissful mountaintop experience and you can't control for whether or not that's going to happen. Just like when you make a decision to go on a psychedelic journey, you might have a, a most beautiful, revealing, blissful trip, or you can really be facing some dark, shadowy stuff that is painful. And it's just about committing to that process and being in for the long haul, whatever it is, knowing that it's all in service of your higher self and your personal development. Um, you, you mentioned earlier uh, in 
in the interview when you were talking about your own um, very powerful spiritually transformative experience that you were kind of able in this moment, yours, yours was also blissful, but in this moment, you were able to kind of hold it down a little bit, even though it was outside of the realm of your normal experiences. And you mentioned that maybe if you hadn't, you, you may have thought, oh man, this could be a psychotic break. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Um, can these spiritually transformative experiences be mistaken uh, by the individual as, as a mental illness, but what about by the people around them? Absolutely. Thanks. That's a great question because it does happen and it's very common. And again, it, it happens because we don't have an alternative lens to look through. So most people will look at somebody having an experience like what I'm describing and they'll call it a you know, dissociative state. And if it lasts, they'll put you in a hospital and they'll medicate you. And that's a very different way of viewing something that can be when held, when held in the right way can be transformative in a positive way. And now you give somebody medication that maybe they don't need, you put them in a hospital, which can be further traumatizing for lots of reasons. You give them, you know, a diagnosis and people really do come away with PTSD from, from not being met and understood. And I think the challenge is that many of our mental health providers are not necessarily open to this yet. And it's because we need to get it into the research. We need to get it, we need to get it funded so that once the research is there, people can start to adopt this and build it into their practices of understanding people in ways beyond what we're trained for clinically through the medical model. So in your experience, um, what, what obstacles and resistances are, are most common? Like what, so obstacles out in the world to spiritually transformative experiences and then resistances maybe within us. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, and this is something I also spoke about in my dissertation. That I called it the internal or external resistance, right? So if you're going through something that is could be considered a spiritual emergence or a spiritually transformative experience, but you're terrified about what that's going to mean. You have a sense of knowing like it's going to mean I need to leave my wife or quit my job or give my money away. That's terrifying. That's an ego. It's a loss of your ego, like how you understand yourself to be in the world and the ego's there to fight, you know? Um, so that's really challenging. And the external resistance similarly could be, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I know they won't understand me. So how can I possibly share this with people? Um, I don't want to be diagnosed and medicated. I'm scared that I won't be understood if I start sharing what's real to me. So people resist and then this process is halted and it's not able to move beyond that space of that maybe first experience. But when we can open up beyond our resistances, and I think we do that through Again, having alternative language and frameworks, having community around it, and then truthfully surrendering to it, not controlling the experience, allowing it to be and work its way through a person, I think is what can bring us to that state of, you know, the next level. I don't know if I call it completion again, because everyone is different in terms of what their process looks like, but, you know, we're ever evolving beings. I don't think we are here on this planet to just grow up, become adults, and then that's it. I think there are these constant opportunities to grow and learn and expand if we take them. And we don't always take them for a variety of reasons. And those are the resistances. So what can we do to 
support people around us if they're having these kinds of experiences. I like a lot of times I have found that in, in my own experience to be very difficult because it can look like watching someone you love go through some suffering and your your kind of instinct is to want to stop that, but that might not be what this person needs necessarily. So um I mean, kind of in conjunction with your work in harm reduction, what 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 can we do there? What what is our responsibility, yeah. and what can we do for those people that we love when they're having these experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think you know there are depths of pain that we are not accustomed to going to in our society, and yet all of that pain is part of what makes us human, and it's part of the depths that we need to go to in order to grow and to heal, and so nobody's going to say it's easy to watch a loved one suffer. And I think we also need to empower the people who might be expressing something like this to us into exploring what they want so that we are not dictating, you need to get this kind of a treatment, but we're really in a process of trying to work with them in that state, understanding what their intuition is asking for. Are they wanting to ride this out at home with people they love? Are they wanting to go to a hospital and get this medicated away as quickly as possible? Like, it's really, again, there's, there's, and this is, I think, part of the challenge in talking about them is there are so many different types of experiences and everyone's is unique, even though they will share some commonalities. But I think giving people alternative lenses, giving people community that can hold them and support them, which is like similar to the Zendo project and these kinds of initiatives where there's peers just creating safe containers for people to go through what they need to go through. I think that is the ideal for what we can hope for is that we will have a community that is emotionally intelligent enough and open-minded enough to be able to sit with people and witness them in their pain and in their darkness and allow this to move through them without dictating and mandating treatments, you know, especially if somebody is not a threat to themselves or to others, and there's just something they need to go through. You know, we all get triggered in our own pain by seeing someone else's. So it's, it's always a journey within ourselves to sit with our discomfort in looking at the people we want to fix, right? So it's very likely that some of our listeners have had some of these, uh, like difficult experiences that we've been talking about, um, possibly, through psychedelics, possibly not through psychedelics, kind of a difficult spiritual experience. Um, what would you say to someone that's had maybe like a bad trip and has had problems kind of bringing what they saw there into their normal daily lives or somebody that's had one of the, one of the kind of less beautiful spiritually transformative experiences that's just kind of sitting there with it. Um, what would you say? What would you say to that person? I think the most important thing is to know that they're not alone and that lots of people have these challenging experiences and that it's part of the process and that whatever they're struggling with, they can find a way to integrate and work through and they just need to connect with the right community, with the right care providers and give themselves a chance to finish that process, which it can be really hard in daily life if you need to work and support yourself and pay your rent to be thinking about, well, how am I going to give myself the, you know, however long it might take to, to ride this out? Um, it's not something that people necessarily understand and recognize if you claim it as sort of a disability, really. <laughs> um, but it, it can be, it can be like a disability. And I think that Again, I don't say disability as something with a period on the end, but it's a period of challenge that when we 
deal with it, when we dive into it, we can work with it and we can grow from it. And that's, that's I think, where the, the work happens. It happens in the darkness. It happens in the pain. I'm wondering if you've experienced any kind of any kind of pushback or criticism or consequences as a result of your I mean it's really two things like the transpersonal orientation as a psychologist um I've seen myself a lot of unfair criticism leveled in that direction um but also in your work uh with with psychedelics and harm reduction um so just any pushback or consequences you can remember Good question um I would say personally other than maybe some rolled eyes <laughs> or people who just don't want to engage in the conversation. I haven't personally experienced a lot of pushback in terms of psychedelics. I think that people still have a lot of fear and old cultural conditioning about what that means. And that's understandable. Um, and again, I do think that will change when we have more research and when the research becomes undeniable. And that's not to say everyone's going to jump out and do psychedelics, nor should everyone. It's not for everyone. But I think that by getting people aware of the fact that this is scientifically validated research that's happening and it's truly having transformative effects on healing people from longstanding wounds, I think that's hard to deny. And then, you know, in terms of the pushback around my transpersonal orientation, I think that the therapists that I know may not always speak the same language, but I think most people are pretty open-minded. And those who aren't, you know, I, I don't take it personally. I think people, all of us, we come to our worldviews, the way we we're raised, their, you know, what what our level of security is and safety and how what our sense of openness is to possibility. And that's fine. And I don't hold that against people because there are people that they can serve from their lens, perhaps. Um, but I do still think it's important for, for people to be aware that people like me are out there doing work in this way because they just might have a patient that suddenly they're remembering our conversation and they're saying, well, I just wonder if this could be something else. And if this person isn't better served working with someone else, if I'm not open to exploring that with them. And I um, wonder if you can tell us about something you've learned in your work um, that most of us might not know that we could maybe benefit from knowing. I think the main thing is that we as humans are innately intelligent. And I think that we don't give ourselves enough credit for the innate intelligence that we do carry within us. I think the body has a way of knowing how to heal itself, as does the mind. And I think that it's about going into murky territory that is unknown, that can be scary, but trusting that if we really allow these natural processes to evolve and unfold, and we just, you know, clean up around the edges so we can get through the day, I think there's some some really dynamic, beautiful things that can come from that. Um, so I guess I translated, I always remember a social work professor of mine would always write on the board um, at every class, he would write, there is always hope. And so that was something that really stuck with me. And I carry it through, I think, in my work is there is there is an optimism for me about the fact that even when we are completely misunderstood, there is always somebody out there who can relate. It's just a matter of finding and connecting with them. And we do that the more we create shared language around this, the more we create community spaces around this and advocacy around this and then money for research and, and that um, laws and whatnot. So yeah, I would say there's always hope and give yourself credit that it, you know, your, your system knows what it needs to be whole. And sometimes we all need a little support in trusting it and that's okay. 
All right. Um, so I just recently saw the the trailer for the film you're working on, um, When Lightning Strikes. Uh, yeah. So I wondered if you could just kind of talk to us a little bit about the the film you're working on. Um, what are you guys yeah. doing with that? What's what's uh, yeah? What's the deal? Yeah, thank you. So yeah, so When Lightning Strikes is a perfect example of um, a person, my friend Kate, who I met because she started describing to me her own Kundalini experience, to use her language, um, and the pain that she's been in. And she's been really challenged with this experience for a couple of years now. And so part of our com- conversation had been about, well, how can she get support if she she doesn't know how to find the other people, if she doesn't have language for it? And so the film is really intended to be about that. It's intended to create a context for people who may not have had an experience like themselves, this themselves, but if you start to acclimate to the language, you might be able to help somebody in the future by recognizing what it is. And similarly, if you are someone who's going through this experience, you now can connect with people and understand what it's about. So yeah, the film is really about our own personal journeys and how we've come together to be curious together and explore together and speak with people who are quote unquote experts, but they're experts because they've gone through their own experiences and looking through the different lenses, you know, the mental health perspective, looking at the yogic perspective, looking at the various spiritual models and seeing what we can learn and just shed some light and and bring some voice to this topic because it's not something that people are talking about. And again, it's not even something we have agreed agreed upon language for. And I think that's really the first step. Um, The reason that we chose the title When Lightning Strikes is because in all of our reading and meeting people along the way, it is the most common way that people start talking. Even before we tell them what we're doing, they will say, I had a lightning moment or lightning struck my body. And it's it's really fascinating. So to have that imagery, but that also means something so personal to people because it seems like it's a one in a million chance, but it does happen, right? And um, yeah, so yeah, thanks for asking about the film. We're, we're, we got halted in our production with COVID, but we're hoping to be building our community and be able to um, complete it again soon. All right, really cool stuff. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Good talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates. Thank you.